Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Storer, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. And I'm Joseph Kamel, host of In Search of Ghosts. And this is a show where we talk about the latest and greatest in horror movies. It used to be Paranormal Entertainment, now it's just horror movies. Because we're weird and you're weird. So why not be weird together? Weird Together is part of the Ghost Story Guys family of podcasts, which includes the fantastic podcast, Mysteries and Monsters, Luke Lore, and Libra de los Muertos. <laughs> I knew we weren't going to get the deep one because your voice is all fucked up right. because you are sick. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been dealing with the cold, So, uh, which I will ask. I'm drinking tea. Bren, what are you drinking? Well, I just finished, before we went on air, a premature uh, um, inhalation, I guess. Um, I was drinking a glass of limoncello because at my heart, I am an old Italian man. Mm. I, I went into the liquor store here in, in one of the liquor stores here in Montreal. Uh, trying to find tequila, and they did not have any good tequila, and somehow I ended up walking out with lemon liqueur. So mm. it's very tasty, very nice after a meal, uh, or just prior to a stream, apparently. Mm. Well, let, let me just reassure you that it is not just in your heart that you're an old Italian man. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, how are you, Brent? I'm good. I'm good. Um, as, of course, as you are sick, I was sick. I was sick for mm -hmm. about two weeks. I had a, I had a cold similar to what you had, but real, real bastard. Just I couldn't get out of bed for a few days, and then uh, I got over that. And one of my roommates brought home a stomach bug, which knocked me out for another <sighs> week, which Great. was good times. But I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm feeling good, and I am ready to talk about uh, what I think is a, a pretty great movie. Uh, but we we won't spoil it. Well, I guess we'll, we 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 will spoil it because we're going to be talking about the latest film from director Travis Stevens, A Wounded Fawn. Real quick though, let me say hey to some of the folks who are here. Uh, Ren is here joining us yet again. Thank you for being here. Uh, we've got Derek who's here. Thanks for hanging out with us, Derek. And we've got uh, Scrapbot Thirteen. Greetings, guys. Thanks for keeping me company while I have the flu and I'm curled up praying for death. We as you as we mentioned, we can relate. We both have been. I'm currently under the weather, and uh, Bren was so. Uh, and then we've got Jenny Umanya. I hope I pronounced your name correctly, Jenny. I try. Uh, apologize Hi, if I get it wrong. Thank you for hanging out with us. A wounded fawn tells a story of Meredith, a museum docent who, having recently healed from an abusive relationship, ends up back in the dating pool where she finds Bruce, a serial killer who looks like Sam Worthington's untrustworthy younger brother, and who kills at the behest of a giant red owl man. Yes, this is going to be one of those. Meredith, of course, does not realize Bruce is a serial killer and so accompanies him out to his luxury cabin in the woods where an escalating series of red flags from Bruce and apparently paranormal happenings outside the cabin lead Meredith to realize she has made a critical error in following a hippie to a second location. Will Meredith be murdered by a weapon that looks like it comes from Dario Argento's Ninja Turtles? Will the literal fates of Greek and Roman myth appear in physical form to wreck Bruce's shit? How many edibles did I have exactly? You'll have to watch a wounded fawn. To find out. All right. So we're obviously going to talk about the movie, but like we always say, you don't go into a movie with nothing. Every movie you've ever watched comes in with you. And so if you want to properly talk about a movie, first, you got to pick apart the baggage. All right. Joseph, my my sick friend, what was your baggage going into a wounded fawn? 
You know, I really didn't have any baggage. I didn't have, you know, I, I'm not the connoisseur of horror films that you are. So I didn't have the familiarity with the, uh, you know, the director's previous work. Um, I just knew that it was a film that had just come out. So it would be something, you know, you thought would be good to look at. Um, seemed like there was a little bit of anticipation of this film, though, based on, uh, you know, people who were familiar with the director's previous work. So I kind of went into it a little bit um, open-minded and, you know, not really a lot of baggage going into that. Okay. Uh, I, for me, it was similar, you know, I, in this, but I, I am a fan of the director's previous work. The director, of course, Travis Stevens. His previous two films as a director, he was, he's been a producer for quite some time. Uh, his previous two films as director were Jacob's Wife, uh, with Larry Fessenden and Barbara Crampton. And then his debut was Girl on the Third Floor, starring Phil Brooks, who is probably better known as the wrestler uh, CM Punk. Mm. I liked both films. Uh, initially, I watched, initially, I preferred Jacob's Wife, but prior to watching A Wounded Fawn, I, or pardon me, prior to the stream, I rewatched both films. And I actually discovered I, I prefer Girl on the Third Floor. And it's got, and I think it's because it feels. Similar to a wounded fawn, I feel like there's something deeper that Stevens is is kind of reaching mm. that makes what he's dealing with or makes what he's putting on screen even more memorable. I mean, mm. as we're gonna we're gonna talk about his his films are very feminist. You know, his films are very empathetic to sort of the struggles that that women face. You know, in in the modern world, and you know, kind of being. I mean, and and have for a long time. It's not a modern world thing. Right, you know, being over ignored, minimized, their accomplishments uh, barely acknowledged, you know, their contributions not properly respected, and this, you know, th so I, I was prepared for that going in, and it's, this very much is that. But there, there's again something even deeper that that it touches, and I, I don't even necessarily quite know what it is, but I, I something I appreciate very much. So I went in, I went into a wounded fawn expecting. Uh, you know, with high expectations, and I, I'll, I'll before we even get to the talktagon, I'll say I was not disappointed. So, uh, but that again, we will get into the uh, the weeds of that in the really the only place that two grown men, adult men, mm -hmm. care of themselves and everything, can have such a conversation. That's a talktagon. Welcome to the talktagon. Two men enter, two men leave. Oh, I've missed that, Joseph. <sighs> it's a thing. Well, well <laughs> when, when this becomes, and folks, this is this is a scoop. We're going to be uh, in sometime in the new year, uh, increasing our frequency again back to twice a month. But one of them will be an audio only show, and uh, I'm I'm the talk to God, it's, it's, it's The cue is still going to be there, but I feel like without. The visual it just doesn't have quite the same punch yeah 100 percent. so pun intended i want <laughs> give me a laugh you son of a bitch that was punch punch <laughs> i'll take it and rin thank you for the recommendation i appreciate that Han ginger tea with lemon honey is soothing uh yes good advice thank you thank you thank you all right so here we go talk to con first point i want to get to is just in general I think that the the opening of the film did a really good job of setting the tone for for the film. There's just this really kind of stylized approach taken by the director between these, you know, really uh, up close, you know, uh, extreme close ups to random things like the knot of the tie, right, and people's jewelry, and then you know, of course, Bruce. 
Um, it really did a good job of setting the tone. And obviously this is shot in 16 millimeter film, which, you know, I don't have a lot of familiarity. I'm not a connoisseur of indie films in the same way that, that you are. Uh, but something about the style of it and all of that really worked. Um, mm. And and it set the tone in that f- first, first scene. And, you know, c- and I would contrast that with, you know, the opening scene of the film we talked about last time, Dark Glasses, set an interesting tone that the rest of the film just didn't follow, right? It just, there was no cohesive vision. That film had an interesting opening, and that was the only thing interesting about oh. the film. Um, I, it had a good score. I was I was yeah, actually listening. You, you mentioned I, I was listening to the score from Dark Glasses yesterday when I was working. That's not bad. It's okay. Better than better than the movie. Yeah, right. But this film it, it set a tone with 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 the use of color and visuals and everything that that was really part of this really cohesive vision for the film um, that we'll talk about a little bit more later. But um, yeah, I just I just really liked from the beginning what I was seeing in terms of how, how the, uh, how it was filmed and, and the, the art direction and everything. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a tangibility, I think that the 16 mil introduced mm-hmm. uh, to the experience. And also, as I understand it now, I didn't find a lot of information about this, but I believe they also used vintage lenses. Mm, okay. Which, uh, you know, sort of contributed to that, that feeling. Uh, Cause it's, the film's not set in the seventies. It's a modern film. But it's very much inspired by seventies, I would say, jolly and, and grindhouse cinema. It's it's very much got that that aesthetic, and the the sixteen millimeter goes a long way. And, and I will say, you know, there's a big difference between real sixteen uh, and simulated sixteen, mm-hmm. because um, I mean, I, frankly, you know, one of the first films we did on the stream was the scary of sixty first, mm-hmm. and I honestly think if that hadn't been shot on sixteen, I think it, you know, you and I weren't huge fans of it although i've seen it way more times than i'd like to admit um and own a copy uh but mm-hmm. that's a whole other beast uh but, but i feel like it, it it would have had a lot less impact mm. had it been shot digitally because i feel like there is something about 16 and, and about i mean film generally but i think specifically 16 where you get the sense that you're maybe watching something a little bit seedy mm, yeah you know a little bit seamy yeah, like texas chainsaw massacre the first one was shot on 16 there's a great story that Daniel Pearl tells about shooting the scene in the very... Have you seen Texas Chainsaw? I actually have not. Yeah. Okay, so that would be worth watching sometime. But anyways, there's a night scene, and it's very dark. And Pearl says that, you know, the 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 nature of the film at the time and the cameras, he said the, the incredible amount of light required to produce that very dark image because the film stock was just not very sensitive mm. was huge. And of course, I... I you know, I have no idea how camera technology and film technology specifically has improved. I, I, I'm not even going to pretend like I know. Mm. But, um, yeah, it, it, they all have that sense of something that you're not supposed to see. And contrast that with, say, Apollo 18, which I quite liked. It was a horror film from about eh, what, 10 years ago now. But that was, I believe, shot digitally and then sort of simu- in simulated 16. Mm. And, again, better film than a lot of people give it credit for. But it doesn't have that same... It just lacks that that tangible quality, you know. It's I don't think you can simulate it. Like um, the cinematographer Steve Yedlin, who shot who shoots a lot of Ryan Johnson stuff, like knives, like knives Out. He's actually a very technically proficient cinematographer, and he's developed some kind of algorithm for simulating grain mm. on digital film, and it's good. Like it looks good, but it's it's still not. It's just not the same as watching something shot on film. But it is again, it's it's very yeah. good. 
Derek mentioned here the scratches, and I, I saw those the occasional scratches. And do you have any insights into that? Was that just is that just what, an artifact of dealing with that film? Was it intentional? I think it was. Uh, it, I, I, I mean, it may have been intentional, but I, I don't believe it was um, simulated. I think it was part and parcel of shooting, mm-hmm. shooting on sixteen. And also, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember it's a it's a cheap fucking movie. And I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean it's yeah. a very low, you know, it's a low budget independent film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually thought that worked to the film's favor. Yeah, you know, there. I remember there seeing a review once of this this horror game. I think it was called Nosos, the Depths of Fear. And the reviewer said it's not a great game. But it's an independent game, and it just it feels like the world is barely held together. And it it feels the way they described it is the it feels like this horror game was designed by someone who himself doesn't quite fully understand what it is he's made. Mm. And it's just got this like kind of dangerous quality that's it's again barely held together. And this this kind of has that. But again, I don't mean that as as an insult. It just has yeah. this sort of very real quality, very kind of like threatening quality to it yeah and i th- i think and this is a, i think a good point to jump off into and a related point that the 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 you know the 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 16 millimeter worked really well i thought it gave it that sort of feel of something you know underground something just not quite mainstream but it also worked really well with what i thought was maybe the best thing of, uh, about this film um and that was the use of light and color um, oh, I just, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it, even little details, like you have, if you see the little overnight bag, this red seventies ish kind of, you know, vintage overnight bag with the cool colors, the vintage, uh, you know, Mercedes he was driving. But then, you know, when you first see this bird demon, I took notice of not just, you know, just the, that red light, but the, the very, I think, intentional choice to have it juxtaposed against sort of a greenish wall. Right. And it, that just worked really well. It, it contrasted really nicely. And uh, even this, you know, it doesn't show up as well in this image, but there's a point later in the film where there's that almost looks like a, a green sheet kind of flapping. But I think something it's, it's about a tarp. It, a tarp. Okay. Something about that, though, in, in the film actually looked really cool, you know, and, and, and there's just a lot of other things we'll talk about a little bit later, like the therapist's office, but like the, the design elements, the cabin, the colors, the art, there was a vision there from, from minute one to the very last minute that included very intentional use of color and lighting that worked well and worked well in the 16 millimeter format. Yeah. I, I, there's a clip I have here. Cause of course the film opens with an auction where these very wealthy, uh, well, I guess technically emissaries from wealthy people mm-hmm. are bidding on high art for them. And there's a, a sculpture called the Wrath of the Irenaeus, which is being up for bid and, and which is up for bid. And Bruce is one of the is one of the bidders. He's you know allegedly bidding on it for a client. And the sculpture depicts a man being set upon by the by the Irenaeus, the fates, the the three the three sisters. Um, I think it, their names are uh, what is it, Electo, Megara, and Tisiphone. And the idea is that they are. They're you know, we're also referred to the, the Furies or the Humanities, um, but they're they are agents of vengeance uh, in Greek and Roman myth, uh, particularly against men mm. who have committed grievous crimes. And so he is bidding; <clears throat> these people are bidding on this thing, and uh, Bruce is in a bidding war with another character, play, Kate, uh, played by I believe Malin Barr, 
mm-hmm. who eventually her client wins. It's a $135,000 uh, bid. And so later the film follows, the film then follows her to her house where Bruce eventually kills her. Um, but this, this scene here, this is in Kate's apartment. And again, just a really masterful use of, use of shadow, which, mm-hmm. I mean, one, I think establishes just tone, but two really kind of, to me, sort of implies also that the, the world around this person, you know, like it, it's, it's very, it's a very high end, it's a high end place, but there's also, you know, she's like, the danger is always just mm-hmm. literally around the corner. You know, darkness is always just around the corner. And I mean, and as a coward and someone who's very aware of his <laughs> physical frailties, you know, I, I understand this. And, and also, I'd like to point out that Kate, uh, again, depicted here, uh, opening some some champagne to celebrate, she is shown carrying a crate with this statue, the, the sculpture, the Wrath of the Irenaeus, which, now remember, her client just paid $135,000 for this. She is carrying it here like a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> that's 135 grand i get nervous pulling my goddamn android phone out of my pocket <laughs> nice yeah like, i don't even like i don't even i refuse to drive my wife's car because i'm worried and my <laughs> wife's car costs about half of what that thing did so I, I admire this this woman navigating this high stakes world because i would have i would have pooped my very expensive trousers i think that segues into kind of a point my next point and you know for as as courageous and brave as as kate is and there's a point though you kind of wonder about her sensibilities she a little too uh self-confident or i don't know just i because like weird psychopath dude shows up at her door and is like hey uh i want to you know pay you twice as much for this and well why would your buyers be willing to pay double for it and his response is because they see something beautiful and they want it and gives a creepy smile i mean and then she lets him in and turns her back to him. And I just, I just felt like Kate was seemed too smart to do that. I mean, her character <laughs> from the things you see, uh, but maybe she was just a little too, I don't know, just didn't have enough stranger danger. I, I, I don't know. Um, well, I, I actually think that's kind of realistic because I think if you look at, I've met, I've met, Men and women like this, but I, I, because we're talking about Kate, so I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I've known women like this who I think they are perhaps overly confident in their ability to assess uh, mm. the danger men represent. Okay. You know, because they're, they'll, they're aware, okay, men are dangerous, but I think they think that it's easier to control because, you know, mm. some people are easy to control, right? Some, some men, even though they appear to be very dangerous, you know, you can control mm. them relatively simply. Um, I'm told I'm, I, yeah, I'm not good at this, but I've been told this by women. Mm. But I think that leads you to, and certainly I've seen this with you know sometimes with people I've known, where they have a little too much confidence in themselves, mm. and they don't properly assess. It. For example, I once knew a woman who was going to a conference in New Orleans. She's a friend, and so I said, "Hey, have a great time. Uh, just so you know, it's dangerous as shit down there. Just be careful, you know, because I've been in New Orleans a couple times, and mm-hmm. you know, especially." I was down there in 2008, which is, you know, I think like what, four years after Katrina, it was, you know, yeah, it's hairy. And she just wouldn't hear it. She said, oh, I've lived in Vancouver. I know what it's like to be in a city, you know, back off. Okay. Well, you know, have fun down there, you fucking moron. <laughs> and, you know, it's a rough city. And so I think because he comes across as weak, you know, his whole, like, I thought that was, 
the depiction of of the intro like you and, were, you and I were talking about this before the show the depiction of of relation of the relationships between men and women was really really well portrayed in this mm-hmm. it was it was really great and he comes across as very as very weak because he is he's a weak man mm-hmm. but weak people can be very dangerous and sometimes yeah. people don't know, don't understand that yeah because all you see is a weak person you think oh it looks like it looks like he's wearing his dad's suit he offers to wait outside because you know well, what, what possible danger can he represent? And, you know, quite often, those are the guys you actually have to worry about because they're carrying, as I said, uh, Dario Argento's Ninja Turtles murder weapons. So. <laughs> real quick, I want to say real uh, th- thank you, August Sinhun uh, Tate. I, I'm sure I mispronounced that. I apologize. I'm a fan of you both. So amazing to see you guys talk, even though I haven't seen the film. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thanks for hanging Definitely out. I appreciate the kind words. This character, I, I think, he, there's some interesting things about how they wrote him, uh, and you know, and and you, as you pointed out, the relationships between men and women, and how this attempt to kind of have power or control by men, but that's really rooted out of kind of weakness and insecurity. And you know, I thought they they there were a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of red flags throughout the film about him. Uh, you know, there, there was a the whole color guard competition. Right, exactly. You know, so they're driving to the cabin, right, and. You know, and they're talking and, you know, I mean, there's just so many little things when, you know, when she asks him, you know, what's the weirdest job he's ever had? And he just doesn't have a response. Like, oh, I've never had a weird job. What about you? It's just someone who has no experiences to talk about is weird. But then she's talking about her ex and then he puts his hand on her leg. Yeah. And it was just like, and she, you could tell it was very uncomfortable for her. She's like, um, like it just, it, it was the wrong gesture with the wrong cue you know not just not reading the situation right? like imagine how tone deaf yeah I, I i have just told you that i've suffered ha- abuse at the hands of a domestic partner oh now you're gonna put your hands on me without my permission cool right. cool you are good at this you are <laughs> you can, boy right. i bet you're gonna be awesome in bed right and then and then you know they're driving and 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 meredith like listen listen i have not been it's been 19 years since i've been single so I, I I get that I don't get this stuff, but even I know that these cues like she's like, hey, uh, look at that. Do you want to stop and get some snacks? I could actually use the restroom, you know. So like that's that's a I gotta go. I gotta stop and but let's do something fun. And you know his response was, Meredith, we're so close. Um, do you think you can hold it? I'd love to get to the cabin and get settled in. It's like you silly woman. Yeah, it's like you know. <laughs> I know that talking to your date like they are kids on a road trip. Listen, kid, I got, I have kids. Listen, kids, can you hold it? Bad idea, you know. And then, you know, sh- three hundred more miles, we'll finally yeah. get to a bathroom. Just piss out the window. I will yeah. figure something out. Yeah. But then you know, she kind of like, uh, okay. And then his response is, uh, even is, you're the best. Like I mean, like right? That's just. That's just so it's- psychopath across the board. And then my favorite was, was this interaction. Bruce says, I love this part. And Meredith says, what part? Bruce says, the intimacy. It's my favorite part. And I'm like, this guy's acting like a lizard person in a suit <laughs> who's read some book on human relationships and is trying to kind of like, uh, I I guess I'm supposed to say intimacy. That's my favorite part. <sighs> I like the human touch connection. <laughs> 
So, I do not yeah. wish to wear you as a suit. I will not masturbate into a sink later. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Rin, Rin with a comment here. A certain kind of man sees a woman's truth as a sign of weakness and goes in for the kill. Okay. When a woman yep. is, like, being, you know, honest and... You know that's unfortunate. Like, like you know, in all pra- in all reality, like when someone is is transparent or vulnerable, they they are giving you an opening to to you know be a more intimate part of their life. But some men abuse that, right? And they see that as as a chance for manipulation, which is unfortunate. So, and, I was, at, yeah, at, I, I should say too, as you know, as someone who who was a very long time ago the victim of emotional abuse from a, a domestic partner, it that goes the other way too. I just because yeah. inevitably someone's going to say, well, it happens to men too, and yeah. yes, it, it does. And I just want to just want to put that out there. Yeah. So you know, there there were there were just so many so many as you said, like a full color guard just. You know, and obviously this was an intentional decision. They wanted to write him as this kind of character where there was just red flag after red flag after red flag. And literally this is half of them. There's so many. When they get to the cabin, it gets worse. And like this is supposed to be like one of the – maybe their second date. I, I so, will say that I don't care if it's second, third, fourth date. That's right. two – not enough dates to go alone to someone's cabin. Right. And I'm 300 pounds. There you like go. I, I I cannot tell you what sounds worse mm-hmm. than going with a stranger to a cabin where I have no power to leave on my own. I, like that's <laughs> right. that's like Napoleon on Elba. Cannot possibly imagine why anyone would enjoy this. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, um, I, we know how you feel about the woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, not. I mean, yeah. There's that too. But it, it, I don't know. Yeah, anywhere I cannot get away from, mm-hmm. at least she has her own room. Because I would say if someone said, come to my cabin in the woods and we're going to share a bed, I would I would just hang myself in the shower stall a la Final Destination. Because <laughs> no. I, you know, I like sharing a bed with my wife because I love my wife. But uh, if we could have a giant king-size bed and we're like, we're, you know, we have our own little fiefdoms that we can sometimes, you know, cross – like a diplomatic core, you know. Right. All right, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna meet in the DMZ in the middle and, and cuddle. <laughs> then we're gonna fuck off to our own sides of the bed, you know. Having to share a bed with a total stranger in a cabin in the woods—that when I finally go to hell, that's what it'll be. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. That first act with with Kate, you almost didn't need that to know. I mean, because you clearly can see something's up with this guy right all the way through. You know, I'm not saying it shouldn't have been in the film, but if, if there were a way to have had that scene happen and not know who the murderer was, you would you would know who the murderer was. I mean, I think it's important to show the provenance of the statue because, yeah, like yeah. I I think uh, I think the statue is really significant because, as I mentioned, you know the 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 Furies they represent female rage. Yeah, and that's not something men, even I think some women are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. You know, like women always have to kind of appear, you know, they have to express their frustrations in certain ways in order to be taken seriously. I mean, there's, there's a moment later in the film where Bruce is having what may be a hallucination or maybe a visitation, but he's telling the, this, this, this person who was one of his victims, well, your anger is not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. But then he himself constantly gives into his anger. Yeah. And so I think that it's significant to show the degrees to which he'd go to possess this thing. Cause I think in a way mm. it shows him trying to possess the thing he fears. If I possess, I possess, I possess female rage. I, 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 I have that thing. I have taken that thing 
by force and now it is in my control and and i think it's a little bit there's this great uh this great moment in the film leaves of grass which was directed by tim blake nelson where a character at the very end of the film says when i was younger i was terrified of thunderstorms and so i read everything i could about them i tried to understand them i read i knew everything about thunderstorms Mm. and they still happened anyways and I think it, this is kind of him trying to forestall, like, like trying again, trying yeah, trying to save himself, trying to to forestall this vengeance that will come, you know, because we, he knows that he you cannot continue to do this shit forever mm-hmm. without some kind of comeuppance. I mean, it doesn't always come in the form of uh, whatever the hell happens in the third act. Right. Um, <laughs> but although I wish it did, man, I wish I wish that. <laughs> You know, Jeffrey Dahmer, just someone clonked him on the head with a statue and then he woke up and a a woman made of wicker was cutting in his like favorite owl man in half. I I just, I wish that for Jeffrey Dahmer, for him to have been chased through the woods by a trash bag ghost until he lay shivering, nude and terrified on the ground. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, you are. That's all right. (laughs) Uh, On that note, I'm going to talk about something I think is appropriate, which is therapy. So, you know, I think the therapist's office was interesting to me, completely going in a different direction here. My sure. wife is a therapist, and I just got to ask, how much is this therapist charging per hour to afford an office with this view? I mean, that, <laughs> that was just, she has a fucking baby grand piano. What's she charging, like $500 a session hour? It was she might beautiful. be in Ohio. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, it's interesting because – uh you know, Meredith's big epiphany for this was definitely foreshadowing. Um, her big epiphany, her lesson that she learned when she's asked by her therapist is, I've learned not to absolve a man for his transgressions against me. Right. And I thought that was, obviously everything in this film is very intentional, but I thought that was an interesting, you know, kind of prelude to what would happen. You know, that because you see her, you see these moments where she is kind of letting some things slide you know, with his behavior, she has limited choice in that, I guess you could say. Um, but then there's a point where she fights back. Right. And he is not absolved, but I thought that was interesting. Uh, scrap out saying, uh, she's got the full Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. Hannibal. That's a great point. Hannibal's got a whole, like a whole lecture hall in his, mm. that he, you know, with, with like two stories and mm-hmm. one of those ladders, you climb up and push yourself, you know, it, yeah, it's kind of silly. Yeah, yeah, but he's gorgeous, so I'll, I'll let it go. Mads, yeah, call right. me. <laughs> um, something I thought was on the subject of not letting him get away with his shit. That character, Bruce, yes, um, played who I don't think we've mentioned yet by Josh Rubin, who's actually a very accomplished accomplished director himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he directed uh, Scare Me, which I, to be honest, I have not seen, but I've heard very good things about, and Werewolves Within, mm-hmm. which really kind of was low-key, I think, the most successful video game adaptation in history. No one really speaks of it that way, but it is a video game adaptation, and it's a great horror film. Uh, it's funny. It's got a ton of personality. Really, really worth seeing. But but yeah, Bruce, uh, and, and Ruben is great as Bruce, um, but Bruce, you know, he never, ever takes accountability for his actions. But even yeah. once the third act kicks into high gear and he just starts getting boot-fucked by the fates, mm-hmm he tries to blame the this owl man he sees he tries to blame that you know it's it's a part of me it's in my brain but it's not a part of me yeah. that's sort of how he and he just he refuses to own his culpability for these things 
and and I I love that. I I know we're going to talk about the end of the film, but in the end of the film, you know, he he thrashes around as we'll as again as we'll discuss, kind of hurting himself, and Meredith just watches impassively. And I think that's a really great metaphor because I I know again men and women do this too, but we're talking about men who will instead of owning instead of taking responsibility for their shitty behavior they will kind of make a big production out of it well i mm-hmm. guess i must be a terrible person and mm-hmm. they'll kind of self-flagellate to the point mm-hmm. where the person they've wronged then comforts them instead of what should be you know this person who fucked up saying oh man i boy i fucked up and yeah. it kind of they you know instead they get comfort and it's it's a very shitty you know emotionally abusive tactic um but I love that she has had this revelation and at the end of the film, she doesn't give in. She just lets him thrash and destroy himself for a very long time. And again, as as we'll discuss. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I I think there's some interesting dialogue in that third act, you know, when he's saying, you know, uh, if you're you're looking to wring some kind of something out of me, you'll get nothing. And he very, he states it in a very intentional way, you know, that you will get nothing from me. You know, then the point when he finally is sitting there at the table, he's asking, will it purify me? And I love her response. No, Bruce, you're fucked. Uh, You know, there's just some really great, you know, kind of dialogue to the point. Um, But yeah, and then, you know, there is that ending that you kind of alluded to, which is, it was very intentional. I, I read bits of an interview, but like, there's this end where he's, he's there just flopping around like a dying fish. (laughs) <laughs> and it was for the entire cre- entirety of the credits, minutes on end. And it was very uncomfortable to watch. It's like it felt like as if you were watching something die, literally, like like a, a you know, you know, I make the joke about a fish, but literally, like if you had a fish you caught and you put it on the on the pier or whatever and just watched it flop around until it was dead, it feels cr- it felt cruel to be. And even though he was clearly a person who himself was, uh, you know, guilty of you know, repeated cruelty as a viewer, it felt cruel to watch or it felt very uncomfortable to sit and, and watch him flop. I mean, it, it was uncomfortable, but I actually found it satisfying. Okay. Um, you know, because of, you know, because he was such a pathetic figure. Cause again, the mm-hmm. whole, that, that, that entire tire, you know, not necessarily a tirade, but that whole fit mm-hmm. is just him just completely refusing again, to take any responsibility. He's just thrashing at himself hoping that someone will save him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's 11 minutes, that that shot. Um, I, I saw in an interview with, with Travis Stevens, yeah. that's a whole 16-millimeter reel, 11 minutes. And they just let it roll. <laughs> they just let it roll, yeah. He said by that point, it was he tries to shoot as chronologically as possible. And so by th- that point in the shoot, everyone was very comfortable with each other. And so he just kind of said, do your thing. And they, they ran with it. And again, I... I I like that. It's similar. Um, there was a similar shot at the end of Ty West's Pearl, mm. uh, which is just this very, very lengthy, uncomfortable held mm. shot. Uh, in, in that, per- the main character Pearl is just wearing this death rictus grin as she is falling apart. It's it's an incredible performance. I really mm. liked Pearl, um, but it's similar in that it holds it to the point where you're now uncomfortable. Yeah, and and I like that because I think it then forces us to examine why am I uncomfortable? Right. What is it about this that that upsets me? And when I say that it was uncomfortable, I give it credit for that. It was like it was it was like I'm not saying I wish it wasn't there. It's more like 
they accomplished something by making me feel uncomfortable. You know oh, what I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it, it was part of the art form. Yeah. Right. And, and to do that. Props to Josh Rubin for doing that. Cause that, that's, yeah. that's an impressive amount of vulnerability on camera mm-hmm. and, and trust in, in your director. So that was, that was very cool. Yeah. And you know, and this is as, as a larger, and this is kind of my last point as an overarching observation about the film. One of the things I just in general, like, is that you you took a film that looked like kind of the slasher genre of this man who's gonna you know murder the hell out of a bunch of women and does does the the lone surviving woman fight back and survive or not and 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 it it really kind of subverted that genre by turning it into oh, yes. into something very <clears throat> different you know this surreal venture into this weird world of his torment it made it something completely different. And I appreciated that it wasn't just a cliche textbook slash. In fact, once we get more towards pretty much to the third act, that sense of fear for 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 her for Meredith is gone because she's kind of been she has been transformed into one of the fates. So, like yeah. through the entire second act, you know, you're you're kind of fearful for her. But once we hit that third act, it it not only does it subvert that genre by going different direction but it does it in a way where all of a sudden you're you're not even fearful for her anymore you you kind of figure we're in a new space so somehow it just really transforms the film completely in that regard yeah and 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 contrast that with the last movie we did dark glasses yeah because dark glasses was made by dario argento who was one of the kings of the giallo which again this film is inspired by that that kind of slasher thing you're talking Mm -hmm. about you know that's that's where that originates. Yeah, and this is so much better than that. Mm, yeah, it's so much better in every conceivable way. And it, you know, it's it's just fascinating that we've kind of reached that point now where the the next generation of filmmakers has been able to take those 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 stylistic tropes mm-hmm. and then transcend them. And and I think that's really cool because I'll be honest. I get really bored with a lot of modern horror, especially independent horror, because the directors are such fans mm-hmm. of, of, of genre and such fans of, of classic horror cinema. I find that they, they're often kind of just doing that thing again. They'll say like, oh, let's have that shot like in The Thing. Let's have mm-hmm. – we're going to have like a, a tribute to Halloween in this, in this shot. And it, it just becomes kind of rote mm-hmm. and it's, it's pastiche, I guess, yeah. past a certain point. Where this takes those things and does them very, very well, better than obviously, you know, than you know, than than the original, um, in a lot of ways, and then takes it somewhere completely unexpected. And I love the shit out of that. Yeah, and you know, and that's that's a great point. And like I think there's a difference between a nod to a previous director's work and recreating, I think, and that's I feel like is what you're talking about. People who are influenced by previous works. And do it in a different way. They take the essence, the ethos of it, and they create something new. That's 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 people who've done it right. It's when you're recreating a shot or a style that's not quite right. And you know, and you mentioned, yeah, you know, this film did so many things that Dark Glasses tried to do but couldn't do effectively. The suspense that it created, the fear, the everything about it. Um, you know, the scary of sixty first we mentioned earlier. <laughs> I think this film did the sixteen millimeter in a way that that film just didn't do as effectively. And of course uh, they did the bird demon better than demonic. Right. So, well, so across, the board, 
Oh, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's pretty uh, empirically uh, true. Uh, so this film just <laughs> succeeded where so many other films we've looked at have failed miserably, especially tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, where is it here? This, uh, this sums up my. Uh... Yeah, there we See, go. my goal is to get at least one of those stings per episode. Well, you're, so... you're 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 on a roll, so. <laughs> right? To talk about the the bird demon. Well, one, yes, I, I, I agree with your point. Th- did that shit better than all those other movies? Um, sc- although you know, much like Scary of Sixty First, it does feature someone jerking off. So, <sighs> you know, I got it. You know, it's a part of the the weird together cinematic universe. Um, <laughs> no, the, the there's a scene with the uh, the fates and the the bird demon that I really appreciate it. And that is where they have, you know, a Bruce is sitting at the table and the fates are basically taking apart because this creature has loomed, as you, as you said, this creature has loomed in the background whenever he's about to do violence. Yeah. He sees this first and he sort of blames the creature. You know, it's obviously he holds a kind of awe and reverence for it. And then there's a scene where the fates essentially operate on it Mm -hmm. and they, and he is terrified. Bruce is terrified about this. And I thought that was, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I thought it was a really effective illustration of how as men, sometimes we have these totemic figures, which don't Mm. really mean anything, but we talk about them like they're a big deal. Mm. You know, like this, this matters, this thing is important. But then when you really kind of drip all that down and you look underneath it, it's, it's actually kind of pathetic. I think the, the the direct reference that seems to make sense is like ego or pride, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because because once you strip away all the pomp and bullshit, it's yeah. something kind of pathetic underneath. Yeah, Ma- machismo, right? That sort of kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah. That, then which which sadly does kind of lead to a lot of men some of the bad behavior, right? Yeah, and, and you know later on, um, I just ha- I want to find my note here. Uh, right. So as I say, the whole time the film, Bruce is kind of in a position of power because he, he, he's, a, he can let himself appear, you know, pathetic. I mean, ultimately he is pathetic, but you know, when he appears to Kate, he seems very kind of retiring and oh, I'll wait outside mm-hmm. because, you know, to him, he's got this weapon mm-hmm. and in the end he's, he's going to kill you. But as the film progresses, once the third act turn happens and things starts getting weird and, and, um, Meredith disappears outside, he's completely out of his element. When he's chasing her in the house, he's powerful. He's strong. But the second he's outside, his dominance is is just it, – it is no longer it, – it just doesn't exist anymore. And I think that's a, a great example of how things like patriarchal, patriarchal power depends on a very specific mm. set of circumstances. You know, I can't tell you that – funny enough, I was, I'm listening to the audiobook version of the, the Devil's Chessboard, which is about the life of former CIA director Alan Dulles. And they talk about, uh, I can't remember, I think they were talking about Dulles, but he kind of felt that the female form was just like inherently inferior. Hmm. Yeah, the fe- and, and it's hilarious because the only reason you can say that is because you are already ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, all the circumstances are in place for you to achieve. But if those weren't there, well, all of a sudden the, you know, the, the old guy with the, the droopy outside genitals that are real vulnerable to a swift kick. <laughs> Suddenly you're pathetic, you know? Right. And, and again, I, I thought that, yeah, Josh is, and, and so many dudes I know who tell me, you know, I'm bro, I'm a dom. They're, they're one, no, you're not. <laughs> and, and two, their, their superiority is based on, again, a very specific set of circumstances. 
And if you step outside that framework and you force them to, to operate outside it, they got nothing. And I, again, I just thought the film very effectively sort of showed the fragility of Bruce, despite his, you know, his brutality. Ultimately, he's very, very fragile. And I thought that was another way to display that. Yeah. I mean, power's contextual, right? You know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, um, someone with all the money in the world is real powerful until they're in the middle of shitstorm Katrina and fighting for their life. And then their money doesn't mean anything, right? But someone who's very strong and physically strong in a social setting where that doesn't do jack for you, right? You're dealing with bureaucracies or dealing with social norms or dealing with personalities or navigating negotiations. Your physical strength doesn't do shit for you there. It's, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of different contexts, but contexts have been constructed that, that favor, you know, uh, those who are in power, men and, and, and other groups as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, is that it for you? You That is the end of yeah. your talk to gun points? Yes. So I, I'm more or less there as well. Uh, and of course, we, we want to bring this in under an hour. But I will say there's just one thing I wanted to mention specifically. One, Sarah Lind plays mm-hmm. Meredith, and she's exceptional. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also in uh, Jacob's Wife and, and Girl on the Third Floor. Brilliant actress. Uh, and this the outfit she wears, I specifically wanted to mention, mm-hmm. just because, again, this is a great illustration of the differences between the sexes. She looks stunning right. at the cabin. And Bruce looks like my cousin, the welder, after his shift. <laughs> and I am never more aware of this discrepancy than when I'm out for dinner with my wife and she looks radiant and I look like an old couch someone left out in the rain. <laughs> yes, I can relate. <laughs> so that has been the talk to gun. And now, of course, I got to know, Joseph, what do you think? What you think? What I think is that's going to be equally as bad in audio only. (laughs) You are not wrong. You are not wrong. I'm uncomfortable every time I look at it, but I can't can't help myself. Yeah, you know. Um, What do I think? I really like this film. It it wasn't perfect, but it was very good. I thought, and particularly the visuals, um, Mm. like we talked about before, the lighting, the use of color, um, the use of the 16 millimeter film. Um, you know, I thought the acting was generally good. There may be a few points here and there that it wasn't perfect, but I thought there was some really, uh, really good dialogue, some really good decisions. I don't know if we mentioned this, uh, we were talking about this beforehand. There's like little things like when she, when her friend tells her, you need, it's time to leave, get out of there. Right. And she's in the bathroom and the way she composes herself, like Meredith, she's like, Oh Yes. Like, like that just felt realistic. Like a woman who's like in a situation that's dangerous and knows that sh- her survival depends on navigating the situation. Right. Yeah. Like just little things like that, uh, that I thought were really good about the writing. Um, so yeah, I, I, this is one of the better films we we've reviewed, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think this and Saloom are maybe, mm-hmm. Yeah. Two, the, two of the best films we've done. Uh, I, I, again, you know, I very much hope there's a physical release because I, you know, I mean, I don't have a Blu-ray player here with me in Montreal, but even so, I would have it shipped, happily have, happily have it shipped home and watch that shit later because it, it's a beautiful film and sometimes st- streaming with the compression artifacts and shit, mm-hmm. you just don't get the full experience. But uh, no, I, I also, I would wholeheartedly recommend this. I think I gave it, the four, first time I watched it, I rated it four stars out of five on Letterboxd. And then when I watched it again today, 
uh, it was four and a half because I, I liked it even more the second time around. And uh, I guess that's it. Just, yeah. All right. So we will be back. Well, the, the next live show will be, I don't know. We didn't really talk about this. I think this is probably the last show for the year. Could be to be determined. We're 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 gonna we're gonna do something different. We might start that up after New Year. We'll keep everyone posted on social media. But yeah, we're kind of figuring out the new schedule. Yes, but uh, until then, of course, you can find me on the Ghost Story Guys podcast, ghoststoryguys.com, and everywhere find podcasts live. And you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on YouTube at In Search of Ghosts, and obviously here with Weird Together. Excellent. And folks, we want to just want to thank you for joining us. This is so much fun. We love when you comment. We love hearing from you. I love doing this show, and I know Joseph does too. And so until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? See you next time. Let me-